Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to this week's Failed Critics Podcast, I'm Steve Norman, and this week we have got the same three as last week, for probably the first time in a fair while, I'm joined by Owen Hughes. Hello. And Callum Patch. Hello. As we go through the last week or so in film, uh, lots of big news to come up, especially with the announcement that Spider-Man will feature, uh, officially now feature, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and the BAFTA Awards, as well as new releases. Uh, from everything from Selma to Sean the Sheep. But first up is the quiz. Uh, Owen is leading the guests 2-0 and is likely to make me suffer through another shit film if he wins this time. Although Callum has been given an incentive by seeing what I intend to make <laughs> Owen watch. Uh, so hope, hopefully he can rally a point back for the guests. Um, I'm going to start off this person's uh, first film on their filmography was 1995 in a film called Living in Oblivion. No idea. No. No. Well, I'm going to go forward as far as 2003, where the first recognisable film uh, on this list might be this one, and that is Elf. <laughs> right, I'm not going for the obvious one then. Zoe Deschanel? No. No. Oh, no, because almost famous, never mind. Oh, are you going to hazard a guess? Well, the only person I can think of the top of my head who was in that was Will Ferrell, so I'll just say Will Ferrell. <laughs> okay. No, that's not right. Well, what a surprise. <laughs> uh, in 2006, they were in a film called Penelope. No, no idea. No. Okay. In 2008, they were in the Chronicles of Narnia, Prince Caspian. God, Jesus. I don't think I even watched that one. The first one I really didn't get on with. It's not Tilda Swinton again, is it? It is not Tilda Swinton. No, no, not sure here. No. In 2012, they did a voice in Ice Age Continental Drift. <laughs> no, I don't think I could even tell you what this is. You're really, like, stretching it now. I have uh, no idea who did a voice in that. I like how you're supposed to be as well picked an animated film here as well, so that if I got it right, I could start, um, I could help you here, and if I got it wrong, or didn't know, I'd look like a kid. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know, I don't keep up with the Ice Age series. <laughs> Uh, in 2013, 
I don't expect any of you would have seen this. It's just got a, 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 a good name, maybe. 2013, Knights of Bad Aston. <gasps> Peter Dinklage. Yeah. Uh, you just beat me to it, but I said my name first. Yes. Uh, nah, I knew that was Peter Dinklage. I know that, Phil. Yes, Callum got that right. No, you're not uh, giving that to Callum. Surely not. I'm not aware we're buzzing here. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I was going to end off with 2014 X-Men Days of Future Past. Um, but yes. So, so in the matter now, of fun... That's that's like Peter Dinklage's name was jumping out at me when I said, well, I was like, no, no, you would have picked slightly more recognisable and yeah. other films for that. Like, you know, it couldn't have been. Then, boom. Uh, see, when I showed today Owen, though, Callum, I wasn't suggesting I was in that film, <laughs> A Knights of Badaston. I went, Owen, and you went, Peter Dinklage. <laughs> no, 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 I, I said these before you shouted your name, or at least according to the stream, anyway. Uh, Internet connections! Alright, okay. We can wait till next week, Steve. Before I make you watch this film I've chosen. Oh well. Two <laughs> two one now yeah. to to Owen, so the if guests said death their a, way back in. If you said death at a funeral, that might have made it like a bit easier for all of us. <laughs> uh so yes, that is the quiz. Uh, on to the news now, uh which we expect to take up a hefty portion of the podcast. And we've been we've been talking about this on and off now for a long time as it's been leaked and rumoured and and everything for a while but it has now been officially announced that Spider-Man is going to feature in the Marvel Cinematic Universe um, and also there'll be some relationship between Marvel and uh, Sony Pictures when it comes to rebooting mm. uh, or continuing the Spider-Man franchise, whichever they decided to do. There's been no mention of who's going to play Spider-Man. If if Andrew Garfield will continue, um, or if it will be a complete reboot. Um, I believe Garfield is out. Hmm. Like I think I think they've kind of like I think the mere fact they haven't well, they haven't mentioned him especially in that scene indicates that they are planning on recasting. Hmm. Which is a bit of a shame because even though the last two Spider-Man films weren't great, he was pretty good as Spider-Man. I thought. I liked him, yeah. I mean, I like Andrew Garfield anyway, but I thought he got the geeky coolness sort of spot on, really. Um, uh, I despite, like... Spider-Man uh, itself wasn't... I mean, they weren't great films. And I don't, I'm not particularly keen on the Raimi films either. I think they were great as introductions for people to a wider, you know, superhero series after the success of X-Men um, in that era, in the early 2000s. but. I didn't really like those films either. So, I don't know. I haven't got much faith that Spider-Man can make a very good movie, whether it's Sony or whether it's him making his first appearance in an upcoming Marvel film, as they say. Mm. I mean, they've not, they've not really given a clue to what that might be. I mean, there's, there's obviously not time to get him into Age of Ultron or Ant-Man, but he could get a, a post-credits scene or stinger mm. in there somewhere. Mm. Um, other than that, I suppose you're looking at Civil War or what? What's the 2016 releases for for Marvel? Uh, Civil War, I believe, four, um, two as well. Yeah, four, three, was it? Four, three. Was it Ragnarok? Was four, three? I think. Yeah, yeah. So you wouldn't you wouldn't expect it to be that, would you? No, it will be. Um, it'll be Civil War. Oh, there's also Doctor Strange in 2017 as well. 
Mm. Uh, oh, yeah, no, yeah. they've shifted um, their release schedule now as well to accommodate a standalone Spider-Man film, a uh, solo Spider-Man film in there. Um, which means that now it goes, basically it goes Civil War, Doctor Strange, Guardians of the Galaxy 2, Spider-Man, Thor Ragnarok, Avengers Infinity War Part 1, Black Panther, Captain Marvel, Infinity War Part 2, and then Inhumans. Which means there's going to need to be a lot of reshuffling going on here in this planet. I mean, it also opens up, I suppose, the possibility of, of Sony working with Marvel on some of the other cinematic properties Sony owns that are Marvel characters. If, if they can do it with one, why not the others? Yeah, or with any other studio. You know, 20th Century Fox, um, Fantastic Four, X-Men. You know, Fantastic Four is just getting a reboot. Deadpool movies coming out soon as well. Um, there, there is potential there. Although, like I say, going back to Sony, are Sony the ones doing the... Um, uh, it's not Suicide Squad, is it? Cause that's... No, it is Suicide. I was in it for six. Yeah, that, Sinister Six film. That's been apparently delayed, but not cancelled, is the word okay. so far. Um, yeah. it's, I, I believe it's happening, but it's not, it's having to be rescheduled. Um, on the right side though, no more Amazing Spider-Man films! <laughs> yes! Oh, oh, this, this is a good day, you guys. <laughs> I no longer have to go and sit down and watch the Amazing Spider-Man series. I mean, I, I, I suppose that I suppose it's quite a, a bit of a, a coup for for Marvel to get Spider-Man back in some some form because yeah. I don't know I don't know if this is right really isn't I don't know if any comic book fans would, would correct me but before the films or taking the films aside is Spider-Man not probably the most well known especially outside of comic book fans uh, most well known Marvel superhero. I think he's uh, the most so, yeah. I think he's the most successful property that, that they yeah. have in the comics world anyway. Um, and I mean, the most well known for kids. Yeah. Well. Yeah, I mean I'd have said I'd have said personally as someone who doesn't read comic books that before the films came along in the last ten years or so, um Spider Man and Hulk were probably the the, the biggest the most recognisable Marvel superheroes. Mm, definitely. Yeah. Um, so to get him back on board in some way is, is obviously going to be massive. I don't know how they how they're going to introduce him if they're going to give him a big part in in you know a major you know one of them, the big releases next year. I know in the comics he's got a big role in the Civil War storyline, or if they'll just sort of do some scene of him post credit scene, or maybe insert a scene of him just kind of saving some people in Age of Ultron, but that's all you see of him. Maybe he's just got in for being Spider Man and. You just see him getting used to his powers and that and saving a couple of people, but that's all you see of him. My, my, my guess, admittedly stolen from the, from an idea by a movie critic online, but, um, is that like, it's like an amp, it's like in a post-credit scene, Ant-Man or something, like, um, you know, Paul was going around and some, like, sort of geeky journalistic reporter comes up to goes like, hi, hi, Peter Parker, Daily Bugle, and then just like, cut the black bear, that kind of thing, like, yeah, it, immediately you get people losing their minds and, and give Ooh. Batman a giant box office boost, which doesn't need anyway because Marvel's impenetrable yeah. at this point. But the, the, the thing, I suppose the thing is with that is, is if you're introducing him as Peter Parker for Ant-Man or Age of Ultron, you've got to cast someone pretty damn quick unless they've done it already and not told anyone. 
it's, also, it's the kind of thing you could do quickly, like that um, post-Jewish yeah. shawarma scene in event like in the Avengers, like that second post-credit sequence was shot in was shot on post in that in the week between it, the UK release and the US release. Yeah, so, like see, so yeah, like you you could get that done quickly, um, and yeah. I imagine the casting agents are already just scouring like lists of names, just yeah. people up, going, yeah, yeah, five months, want to be in here. So, I suppose. I suppose my argument is, if you just had someone in the in the suit without his face showing, you could pretty much just CGI him into a scene if you really needed to, or you could just get an extra or stunt man to play him just in the in a suit. Yeah. I remember um, when I was like little. Then if you could watch the um, you know, the the, the cartoon from the nineties. I'm aware of it. Yeah. Yeah. So I remember when I was like little. I must have been, I don't know, seven, eight. I, I don't know what I was. And there was um, an episode that Sky One were really pushing at the time. It was like around Christmas saying, oh yeah, this is going to be our big special episode. This is going to be where Spider-Man turns up in the X-Men cartoon. It's going to be fantastic. And I stayed up to watch that. And all you saw was Spider-Man's arm. I mean, you literally saw his arm in the frame and shoot some web. So if it's something what? like that that turns up in... I like to think that's the, that's the event that turns you into the bitter, jaded critic that you are. That's it. <laughs> no more. That's it. I'm not buying into hype anymore. From the age of seven onwards, fuck you. Uh, that's enough for me. Yeah, but um, but you know, I, I think if all that they've said, as far as I know, is that he's going to be uh, making his first appearance in an upcoming Marvel film, and that Kevin Feige is going to uh, produce. Is he a Spider-Man? Yeah, um, him. Him and Amy Pascal yeah. are producing, essentially they're in control, like, the, de- the terms of the deal are that Marvel gets him, but then Sony retain creative control over solo Spider-Man films, but you know that, you know that's not going to happen from there, like, for one, Fage is, like, is a major control freak of these films anyway, and B, at this point, pretty much the only words Sony wants to hear are Marvel have to go, yeah, now you need to watch the Sony films to keep, to keep the Spider universe fair. Like, they will ask you to think, because they know by this point that they, you know, Marvel will just take their toys and go home for a while. And it could be a sort of saving grace for Sony, because yeah. they're not doing very well, are they? No, and those Spider-Man yeah. films keep getting, like, keep doing worse and worse. Well, which is why this has happened. Which is also why the X-Men thing won't happen. I mean, like, because uh, it's doing too well. Um, it's doing too well for Fox, even though the films aren't great. No, but again, Fox are making money, so why would they go to Marvel? And go, <coughs> yeah, we'll give, you, we'll give you these characters out there, there's no reason to. Mm-hmm. I mean, when Fantastic Four fails, more than likely, hopefully, because Lord looks awful, um, then maybe we'll talk about that that way. But for now, everything is as is. Yeah. Plus, I'm looking at this graph you people sent over, like you guys sent over to me about that, and there's pretty much just nobody else but Marvel to take at this point. No, they have got they have got most of their comic book characters back now, haven't they? Is it? But the suppose... thing with the Lion King <laughs> and, uh-huh. and the more at Universal Pictures. Hmm. Um, but I suppose yeah, it's really Spider Man, which they've now got back in part. The X Men and Fantastic Four are the ones that they're really probably missing out on. And Venom, but who really wants a Venom movie? Thank you. Yeah. Exactly. That's why. And uh, it's interesting as well, on that graphic, I'll pull a, a link to the graphic on the, the blurb that comes out with this po- this podcast. Uh, I need to call it a podcast then, that's a bit of an innuendo. Um, Namor is with Universal Pictures, and he was the first X-Men. He was the first X-Man. Um, and obviously X-Men are owned by 20th Century Fox. So, 
Yeah, that would be interesting if there was if all these studios could kind of just get together and make one big film. Which will happen at some point. It will probably be the movie event of the entire century. Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, there is a um, storyline in the comics. It wasn't very well received, but um, was the Avengers versus the X Men. That was, you know, a big Marvel crossover event. Um, so, you know, I'm just pulling that out there. If it appears, yeah. then just send me the, the royalty check. I'm, I'm happy to accept it. Yeah. Maybe Hugh Jackman will push for that when he never, when he finally just like, just completely stops giving shit about being Wolverine. <laughs> I really hope he doesn't do that. He seems to absolutely love playing the role. Mm. You know. Well, well he, he kind of seems to like get better the more he ages as well. Like, he's a fitting Wolverine as well, so. Yeah. And we've almost kind of forgotten about the furore that was around his captain as Wolverine. Because, you know, he's meant to be this short, ugly, little, angry Canadian. And then... Well, I, 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 of course, want to remember, because I was three, probably, when that, when that news broke, so... Oh, okay, yeah, you might not have remembered that. <laughs> but, you know... Yeah, making you feel like an old man again. I know, shut up, Callum. All right. <laughs> um, but, yeah, you know, so Wolverine isn't a tall, handsome Hugh Jackman, basically. Um... Well, I think we've all agreed he's, he is Wolverine now. It would be very odd to see anybody else in that role. Unlike Spider-Man, who basically you, you could probably look at, you know, Miles Teller even from Whiplash would do a very good job as someone like Spider-Man. I've got That's a, a nice segue into who we'd like to see cast as him. <laughs> it is, isn't it? Did you yeah. like that? <laughs> yes, I did. Um, Thank you. Well, that, well, when, when Fantastic Four bombs and make you completely, maybe he'll finally break into Hollywood that way. Like, like, it's not like he's in Hollywood right now, but Hollywood just seems to have no idea what to do with him. But, Who like, is that, sorry? I'm Miles Teller. Miles Teller. Oh, Miles Teller, Miles Teller, yeah. But, like, indie cinema, Whiplash, Spectacular, now that, he's great. He's very mm. into information, so he's apparently just fit, fit to play douchebag guys in shitty young, young adult franchise films and terrible bro comedies. So, mm. I just want good things to happen to Miles Teller because he's really good when he's given an actually good film to star in. Yeah, I mean, I've only seen the one film of his, but he was very good in that. I really enjoyed his uh, performance in, in Whiplash. Um, I was watching Surgeon in a month. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, um, mentioning Fantastic Four film, Michael B. Jordan, who's in that, um, could potentially play Spider-Man. I'm trying to remember yeah. off the top of my head, there's an alternative universe Spider-Man who's black. Yeah, um, Miles Morales. Miles Morales, exactly, yeah. yeah. And, that, and um, Twitter, especially that, has been just lighting up about pushing that casting ever since news happened, which I'm really glad the boys are thinking that people are doing. But, like, I'm kind of just realising that we should do that now, that's the great news thing we need. Exactly. Um, which also means that the Donald Glover for Miles Morales casting petition um, has started up again. Although, he, oh, I think Love is happier being a rapper now. So, <laughs> we'll see on that one. Mm. But, um, yeah, Steve, you got any thoughts on who you'd like to see playing Spider-Man? I think Miles Teller seems to be the most popular shout, at least. Um, been, obviously, yourselves have suggested it, and many other people as well. Um, it's quite hard to say, because it's, it's, it's getting a balance of being kind of the geeky unpopularish nerdy Peter Parker and the quite cool and cocky Spider-Man mm. but somebody you can really pull off both which is probably quite difficult to do it is so, kind of so you wouldn't be in favour of getting Tobey Maguire back in other words yeah uh, after that 
after that struck walk playing <laughs> piano thing from from Spider Man Three, no, I think he should be nowhere near it. You realise that you, realize, you you people do realise that, that that was the whole point of that thing, right? Is a then he was, thought he was being cool and he wasn't. Yeah, yeah. even though him and Venom itself have no idea of the concept of cool is. So. Oh yeah, I, I I get the point of the scene. It's just fucking ridiculous. Yeah, even Raimi's come out and said that film was awful. Yeah. What if they What if they did cast Tobey Maguire there? So then you could link the Raimi universe in there. Purely so they could kill him off in Civil War, bring up somebody else for next Spider-Man. Bringing Miles Morales. Bringing him back to kill him would be probably the only acceptable way they could do that. Yeah. <laughs> Plus then you get to do Miles Morales like properly yeah. in his own film. So. Yeah, exactly. Also, that way you get to keep J.K. Simmons as J. Jonah Jameson. Oh, getting them two back together would be the epitome of cool for, for either studio. Yeah. Just like keep, keep throwing buckets of money at J.K. Simmons. I'm sure he'll come back. It needs, if it's going to work, it needs J.K. Simmons back. Let's start the petition here. Start to yeah. fail critics. Um, of places before this, but no, no, ignore those, ignore those. It was here, it was here. <laughs> uh, so yes, that's the news about Spider-Man, and the other major bit of news from this week was the BAFTAs, which happened on Sunday night, and the biggest story coming out of that is that the, the, the theory of everything uh, picked up the best, best film and best leading actor um, for Eddie Redmayne as well, playing Stephen yeah. Hawking. Did it win best film? No. Or or best adapted screenplay? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. An outstanding British film, which we saw coming anyway, but goddamn it, under the skin. Taking that. Mm. I mean, it had to be fair of everything or imitation game because those are both nominated for best film, and it looks quite bad if you don't nominate for best if you don't give it one of the best film nominees, outstanding British film, doesn't it? So. But, yeah, yeah. It, it beat Pride, didn't it, which you were quite keen on. Oh, yeah, very much. I, I really want to watch Pride again, actually. I can't wait for it to DVD. Yeah. I mean, they, the, the ones listed there, there was The Theory of Everything, 71, Paddington, Pride, The Imitation Game, and Under the Skin. Yeah. I would have been happy with 71 or Under the Skin, but I don't think either of those were going to do it. I think, really, it was between The Theory of Everything and The Imitation Game. But I like Star Wars. Yeah, um, I don't think I don't think seventy one and under the skin were probably big enough, if that makes sense, to win. And padding the outstanding British film, Paddington. Although it's good to see it nominated in some ways, it, it's still a children's film, which very rarely wins these kind of awards. Um, so I suppose the theory of everything was always going to be right up there, you know, as, as front runner for that for that okay. award. Um, like, 71 Under the Skin are, like, are essentially, like, a thriller and a horror film simultaneously, and those films never do well at awards anyway. Like, I'm pretty sure the only reason they were nominated is because they got so much critical acclaim, it would have been weird not to nominate them. Yeah. And, and Paddington is a populist choice, because Paddington has turned into a surprise runaway hit. Like, mm. mega hit there, which both baffles me, but also at the same time I completely get. Yeah. Uh, and again, this comes from somebody who likes it. So, hang on, so I've just checked, it's made $211 million. Blimey. Worldwide, it has made $211 million. That's actually um, quite astonishing for a little um, British animated film. Well, not animated. Um, 
and increase global marmalade sales tenfold. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> and put Peru on the map. Yeah, <laughs> quite, quite, quite literally, or not so literally not in so some literally. cases. Yeah. Uh, awards. Shall we talk about awards? Yeah. So, um, best picture, pretty predictable. Pretty predictable. Boyhood. Boyhood. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, and it will walk away with it at the Oscars as well, and I will roll my eyes so far out of my skull. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, we haven't really had a, a debate about it on here. Why didn't you like Boyhood, Callum? In like uh, less I than a minute. It. I, like, I hate it because it's a film that thinks it's about something, but isn't about anything. Like, it has no point to make. Like, it, it comes down from Pong High and tries to claim, like, this is what boyhood was like for everybody in the 2000s. It doesn't actually, like, say anything. Examine, like, it's pri- the privilege in heaven in, in being middle class and like, all that. Not anything to say about family, anything to say about characters, that. But of course, then you might go, like, oh, well, it's not meant to. It's meant to be a character piece. Except for the fact that I learned, except for because of that, because Mason Jr. himself is a blank slate. Like, the most you learn about him, that is that he likes girls because he's a teenage boy. And that he might possibly be into photography, maybe. <laughs> but, like, that's it. Like, it's basically like a blank slate you're supposed to project your feelings onto. Dead there. And that, so it fails with character piece. Um, most of us, it ends up just spending a lot of the, like, it has no recurrent theme, right? Like, the first half of the film very much seems like to be a film about being too young to understand how the world works. You know, which is why it spends so much time on, um, Mason Jr.'s parents, you know, a bad bickering and divorce, and the divorce and abusive parents, string of boyfriends from out there, which is why there's also that ridiculous scene in the middle where she runs out on her, um, like on her abusive husband, which, like, I'm not saying the situation itself is ridiculous, but the way it's played in the film was like, swinging from the fences, hamming, hamminess from the guy, like from the guy, from the abusive husband there in general. So, and then it leads into the second half where it drops that theme and just becomes about nothing. Like it just meanders and does nothing, says nothing, <coughs> actively steers itself away from any interesting or character arc there, it, and instead tries that, like you're saying, something by starting like pseudo philosophical bullshit that means nothing, much like a real teenager. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, that's the only interesting part in there that is the mother, like Olivia Evans, played by Patricia Arquette, because she has an arc and interesting stuff going on. And like, there is that devastating scene near the end, you know, where she just sits there and kind of bitterly, like, kind of, like, regrets, cries herself over a life of regrets, having not having lived her life and lived it's amazing instead. And I'm not there, like, yes, this is a brilliant scene. Why do we not get more time with her? Why do we spend more time with the dad? Like the dad, who ends up, who A, isn't the primary guy, and B, whose scenes eventually just end up hitting the same beat over and over and over again. But, like, it's just, it's a maddening film that, where if it wasn't for the 12 years gimmick, it wouldn't, like, it wouldn't have gotten any, like, it wouldn't have gotten any recognition or intrigue from that there. It's a film, I feel like Linklater started off as having passion and somewhere like that, but then somewhere along the line it became more of an obligation for him, basically, in that there's a kind of, well, I'm gonna see this through, because then it'll look cool, I guess, but, that, that's it. It, essentially, I feel like I had two hours and forty minutes of my life wasted by you there, and I hate it for more and more I think about it. Also, I absolutely fucking despise that last scene. You, that last scene, you know, when he gets to university, you know what I'm on about there. I hate yeah. everything to do with that goddamn ending. Well, that wasn't quite under a minute, but... <laughs> I don't but think we've had a rant like that for a while, so... Well done, Kyle. But, I mean, I think, I think from someone like me who's not seen Boyhood, the major thing I've heard about it is it's kind of a triumph in filmmaking as it was made over the 14 years or whatever it was made in the same cast 
that the, the the story is essentially a bit boring. Not a lot happens. Yeah. Like, um, no, for once, I'm not being. I didn't think I was being controversial because I kind of liked it. I have to admit, I kind of liked the meandering process. The problem was by the, the two hour point, I thought. I'm not getting any more out of this now. There's another 45 minutes to go, and I don't think there's anything more it's going to tell me about Mason, about um, his relationship to his parents, or any of the drunk, abusive fathers, figures that have been in his life. And I just thought, another 45 minutes is too much. It could have just finished there, but of course, due to that gimmick, um, it couldn't. It, it carries on. It is on. a gimmick, basically. I, I see it as a gimmick, yeah. I don't think that's necessarily a, um, a disparaging comment about the, the, the way that it's made. I just think it is made with a gimmick in mind. Yeah. In the same way. Like, yeah, like, I, I hate, like, again, I just like Boyhood, but I will admit that Arquette, like, you know, deserves the praise he's getting, and that Link Later does deserve the direction thing. Like, in terms of the achievements and the ability to keep it, like, that consistent hmm. um, for 12 years. Because, like, again, 12 years is not only a long time to have to keep the same filmmaking, but at the same time, Roe was a filmmaker a lot over years mm-hmm. um, and seem like the other key because that that is a really hard on achievement and I'm like I understand them relatively badly later won the best directors in uh, but not interestingly at the director's guild awards. Um oh, really? they gave yeah they gave the award bear to Alejandro Gonzalez in his artist Birdman. Good because Birdman is allegedly making a late a last minute resurgence um for the Oscars there in America. Which I mean, admittedly, doesn't surprise me. It is a film about an old, aging white male actor who's sadly not as famous as he was. Once. <laughs> but um, I mean, obviously, that's not what the film's about. But that's how it looks. That's how it looks. Yeah. The voting body in that there. Um, um, at the same time, at the same time, I no, this is it's a lock for Boyhood best film at this moment in time. It was a lock the second they put it in the can, and at this moment, it's pretty much just people trying to inject interest into race that's already been won. Much like I thought, much like I thought, with twelve years, twelve years of slave last year. Although apparently that was actually much closer than it sounded. So. Boyhood is basically this year's Gravity, isn't it? It's it it's up there for the way it's filmed and the way it's made, but the the story is a bit rubbish, really. I actually really like Gravity, though. Uh, oh, I like Boyhood more than Gravity. I I watched Gravity again not too long ago without the sort of three D in the cinema, and it was just I didn't think much of it in the cinema. I thought it was a, a great. Spectacle, um, but the yeah, story, the story, the, just, not, there's nothing to it really. No, the story didn't grab me with Gravity. I don't, I don't think that you're going to. Gravity's not the kind of film you're going to buy and watch again on your telly, is it? It's well, I did, I did, I didn't enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> I did, I have, and I enjoyed it. So there you go. Uh, best, best, uh, or oh, sorry, leading actress was Julianne Moore for Still Alice. And I applaud Julia Moore. She is a very great actress. She probably puts in a great film to still add, and she shouldn't have won. Hmm. Still out, who, who, who should, why, why does it not qualify? Just explain okay. to those who okay. might not I'll know. I'll explain here. I've noted it down on my paper. I'll explain to you. Like, to be eligible to be nominated in the year's BAFTAs, you need to have your film released between January 1st and December 31st of, of, of the given year. Um, films nominated by the previous year that came out between January and that don't count. Um, However, there is an overrun period, specifically for, you know, the American Oscar Day film to come over at the beginning of each year, which runs in this year from January 1st to February 13th. And if the film comes out between that period, then you need to screen it for the people before December 16th. Like, um, as long as the film runs in the country in some way between those dates, it counts. 
Still Alice comes out on March 6th. It has not had any UK festival showings. It has had no preview, like it has not had no previews for any of the general public. It just comes out in the UK on March 6th. Well outside the already generous overrun period, and therefore should not have been allowed to have been nominated. Now again, Julianne Moore is a fantastic actress. She deserves tons of praise and awards for all those years she's been snubbed in that. But, and she might be brilliant and still Alice, but rules are rules. And to quote the Big Lebowski, am I the only one around here who gives a shit about the rules? <laughs> yeah. It's pretty um, amazing that they've let it through. It just, all it says is that there's perhaps, I'm not saying there definitely is, I'm just alleging perhaps, maybe, that it looks like there's corruption uh, afoot. Because I don't think it's that. I think it's just them trying to help the Oscars decide for everybody else. Like, did you realize that a lot of awards boys and that essentially just like line up to a certain degree amount here? So, that's the point from showing here. It's just like, oh, everybody else is giving Julianne Moore the award. We better give it as well so we don't want to be mute. Hmm. I don't know. I think there must be something in there because usually the BAFTAs and the um, Golden Globes are the two award ceremonies that actually give the, the, the Oscars a bit of. Um, you know, what's the word? Momentum. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, if they've said, well, if you just put Julianne Moore in, yeah, maybe, I don't know. And I also would get, again, not just for the rules thing as well, but I also wouldn't be this angry if it, won't, if it didn't keep, say, Scarlett Johansson shut out completely everywhere. Yeah. Well. Yeah. That's also a sponsor. But at least, at least, Best Actor in a leading role was at least nominated um, Jake Gyllenhaal for Nightcrawler. Yeah, he didn't win. He didn't win, but it's more than he got the Oscar. Yeah, yeah, for his uh, impression. Yeah, his impression. He's going to be Oscars, isn't he? Yeah. Yes, Owen, are you going to repeat your quote about Eddie Redmayne and and what he did or did not do? Um, (laughs) It wasn't my quote. I was I was quoting uh, Tropic Thunder. Actually, <laughs> uh, yeah, but you know, as I said on the podcast, the proof is in the pudding. It's yeah. an award without um, you going, know, going that far. Without going that far, yeah. yeah. Even though he um, didn't play a character. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, good Lord. most of those people in, that, uh, in this kind of list are just people like awards in the this year are people who don't actually play characters. Just you know, kicks applications. I mean, not so much Bafters, because, you know, they nominated Grand Budapest and Nightcrawler and Birdman, but, like, over at the Oscars. Hmm, definitely. They didn't nominate fine for Best Actor at the Oscars, did they? No. It's... Oh, yeah. No, it went to Bradley Cooper. Uh. <laughs> Bradley Cooper now has the same number of Academy Award nominations as Humphrey Bogart. Does that mean that Bradley Cooper is this generation's Humphrey Bogart? Well, it's well, interesting because they're pushing him and uh, people like Emma Stone and Jennifer Lawrence. I had this conversation on the Not This Again podcast, actually. We talked about the Oscars on that. They are trying to create their new generation of, um, you know, Robert De Niro's and so on by pushing these actors constantly. And Jack on the podcast made a, a very good point that maybe by giving them so many awards and nominations now for mediocre films, and, you know, average to good performances, they're going to look a bit foolish later on in their careers when they're putting in actual yeah. brilliant performances. And you look back and think, they won, they got a nomination for, for that film? But, 
you know. Remember when we were terrified that Lupita Nyong'o was going to lose Best Supporting Actress at the Oscars last year to Jennifer Lawrence for American Hustle? Yeah. Well, exactly. That's what I mean. They're just putting forward performances that, you know, she's good in American Hustle. It's a film I actually enjoyed, but, yeah, I don't know. They're just trying to create these personas. It's the same with Emma Stone this year getting nominated for Birdman. I like Birdman. I thought it was the best film I've seen this year. Um, Emma Stone was good in it, but she's not, like, Oscar-nominated potential, if you ask me. I don't know. Maybe. I'm just saying Emily, Emily, Blunt, Emily Blunt was nominated for nothing anywhere. Yeah. Emily Blunt for Spider-Man. There we go. Or Captain Mark. Emily Blunt for all the roles. Uh, best animated film went to the Lego movie, beating Big Hero 6 in the, the box breeze, roles. And was shunted to the roundup. I was angry. Yeah, was it, I mean, I mean, was it, was it essentially like the, the fight they don't have time to televise on WrestleMania, so it just gets shown like before he goes live? Yeah. It was, a short, it was a short category, though, wasn't it, for Best Animated Feature? It always yeah, just... They only ever nominate three here, so... Mm. Uh, yeah, no, that's how it is. Um, but, however, they did have time for many dreadful, dreadful Stephen Fry jokes. <laughs> Can you remember any of them? Were they that bad that they've just completely gone out of your mind already? No, 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 no. Remember when he was introducing the guy who was going to do Best Comic Book? And now I could... I don't believe it. It's Tom fucking Cruise! That was the joke. That was literally the joke. He's at Stephen Fry shouting, It's Tom fucking Crow! Yeah. You know what? I didn't watch any of the award ceremonies this year. Pissing down with stars. Pissing it down with stars. Pissing it because it, it rains in England and there's stars and the like, it, This is these, this comedy gold here, you guys. <laughs> he imitated Stephen Hawking. That's just the height of humour right there. And Stephen Hawking was actually there, wasn't he? Yes. He opened the show by, by asking Michael Keaton and Edward Norton to kiss him. Because he's gay and also married, which therefore would make his husband jealous. And has, has Stephen Fry ever mentioned that he's gay and married? Did he mention it was to a much younger man as well? That usually comes up at some point. Yes, yes, he did. Um, yeah, okay. Bingo. Cuba Gooding Jr. came out to present an award and was funnier than Stephen Fry. <laughs> like, he came out and first thing he said was, um, before we get started, Stephen, I'd like to say I am offended that you did not choose to ask to kiss me at the beginning here. And I started to say, like, do you have something against black people before Stephen Fry <laughs> Hmm. Like he was funny, um, like like he was actually funny about. Which the few laughs I actually got were from people who weren't like um, Michael A's speech was hilarious as well. As well, who was nominated who won the BAFTA Academy Fellowship this year, and he spent like five minutes just kind of stood there, um, both kind of patting himself on back, patting the independent film industry on the back, and giving a giant middle finger to people who wouldn't give him money for his way of making films. <laughs> way of. Um, well, thank you, anyway, for not doing that, because then that meant you didn't come in here and fuck it all up. Yeah. Like, like he basically just, like, started, like, it's like he was quoting, like, James would have been amazed if he just started quoting Taylor Swift, to be quite frank. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. um, also, my favourite part of the entire award ceremony, besides um, J.K. Simmons winning for Best Supporting Actor, which is long overdue and so happy to see, and Wes Anderson winning for Best Original Screenplay, where he pre-wrote a speech because he wasn't there, but was already funnier than anything else anybody else did. Uh, was at the beginning, where we did that, you know, like typical, you know, this past year in film montage. Mm. Um, but this year they had Kasabian come out and perform, and perform Stevie, like while the montage was going on. And, um, but they kept cutting to the audience full of celebrities there who had 
We were just completely confused and seemed to have no idea how to react to Kasabian. <laughs> like, I kind of, like, just obviously we just, like, sat there. There's a rock band on stage now. What are they doing? What are they, I don't, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I've never heard, I don't know what these people are. This is not the music I normally like. I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. So it's just, like, all these awkward faces. And even, um, Kasabian up on stage, even looking awkward and confused, like, why are we here? Uh, so, like, I, I found that rather amusing. Also, it's amusing as them trying to sneak Postman Pine so that it's best film last year. Yeah. So, Speaking of why are we here, are we going to review some films today? We'll, we'll get on to that very shortly, <laughs> Alex. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm on the back of the website now, and just, just for something that's possibly a bit funnier than Stephen Fry, um, they've got a key to denote certain things on, on the winner's sec on the awards section. Apparently, win denotes the winner. Oh, that's very helpful. Yeah. Yes. Just in case you didn't know. Yeah. I I just thought I'd kind of yeah. Win denotes winner. Thanks for that, BAFTA. Yeah. Oh, also, uh, also here quickly as well. Um, best outstanding debut went to Stephen Bellis and David Livingston for Pride. But I need to mention that as well. That Pride actually won something. That's good. Yeah. I haven't seen it, but I'm always glad when. It, well, was it for a British award? Sorry. Yeah, um, outstanding debut, and also so essentially won that when he lost British film. Oh, okay, yeah. And then Jack O'Connor won the Rising Star Award, and it turns out I have a full-on man crush on him now. So. <laughs> oh, what? yeah, he, he he is very deserving of that. He's, the few films I've seen him in this year, he has been excellent. Like he, he was outstanding, but also then he got up on stage and essentially just like through his entire speech, right, just came off as a guy who. Inadvertently just stumbled in that. Yeah. <laughs> As a movie star, he just wandered around, just acted like like a teenage guy, like kind of like, oh, this is this is this is all a bit fast, and isn't him? Like, I was like, oh, you wonderful man, have my baby. I saw him before. He looked like he just fell out of Oasis. That's how it was. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's a compliment or not. <laughs> anyway, that that brings an end to uh, the back of chat, the news, and part one. Up next, we will finally get round to reviewing some new releases. Time for four new releases for us to review for you now. We're going to start off with Jupiter Ascending that I didn't understand from the trailer, but Owen has seen for us and will hopefully give us some clarity on that. I will, but I'll start first by asking a question, and it's aimed at both of you. Um, what's your favourite? Rakowski film. Not necessarily objectively the best. I'm not asking for objectively the best, but your personal favourite. Steve Aether. Boom. That's the right answer. Let's move on. Okay, Steve. I'm guessing The Matrix. Yes. Yeah, okay. So, uh, sorry, that was very presumptuous (laughs) of me, wasn't it? You could have said anything, but, you know, okay. Um, Okay. Why why lie and pretend I know more about cinema than what I do? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay, for me, personally, uh, it's Cloud Atlas. It's got that marriage of like fantasy and reality. It blends subtext with the explicit. It creates something bigger and better than it had any right to be on such a like limited budget that it had, re- relatively limited budget. You know, it was subtle. It was fascinating. It was full of interesting ideas and concepts, um, based on a very complex novel, and it was adapted perfectly. Jupiter Ascending is like the opposite of that. It's everything I've just said. But the opposite. Um, it stars Mila Kunis as Jupiter Jones, who's daughter of a widowed Russian immigrant to Chicago, who uh, cleans the toilets and bedrooms in a hotel her family owns. And she, by her own admission, frequently throughout the film, uh, hates her life. 
uh, in a bid to earn enough money to buy a four grand telescope, something her deceased father would have used as he looked up into the stars. Oh, that's a bit foreboding. She decides to donate her eggs for some cash uh, at the sort of behest of her cousin. And whilst at the hospital, she's attacked by these alien things. She's saved at the last minute by a gene spliced half man, half wolf type crossbreed uh, assassin for hire called. Oh, I wish I could remember. Yeah, <laughs> thank you very much, Callum. Uh, played by Channing Tatum. And it turns out that the bees, and that's seriously just regular bees, recognise Jupiter, uh, unbeknownst to her, who as an actual royal. She's a member of royalty, and thus begins this intergalactic uh, tug of war between three different powerful millennia-old siblings who see her as their reincarnated mother. And uh, they want to bump off January. They want to kill her so that they can take possession of the Earth for their own profit. Uh, which I won't go into because it's part of the plot and it'll be a did bit... Did you just spoiler. call her January? I, oh, I did January just call Jones. her January Jones. Yeah, sorry. Jupiter Jones. <laughs> Blimey. Uh, okay. So, yeah, I mean, firstly, I didn't think it had a very coherent story. It was all over the place. It was a bit of a mess. But it brings me back to the point I made about Clay's Atlas. And whilst that had a kind of myriad of interconnecting stories that were each in their own right fascinating, weaving this kind of complicated but well-structured narrative, Jupiter Ascendant was was not. It was just a mess. It didn't weave any narrative particularly well. It starts with, like, there's about four different sections in total to the film, and they each feel like four sections. They feel like four episodes in a TV series. Um, and I really did want to like it. I... When I first heard about the film and knowing who was behind it, I was rather excited. You know, a massive space opera, it's got elements of fantasy stories in it, and, you know, with the whole secret princess and interplanetary battles and whatnot, I thought it could be quite fun and very self-aware, but it was, it was pants. I really didn't enjoy it. And it reminded me of, like, um, you know that terrible kids film with Anne Hathaway and Julie Andrews? Uh, The Princess Diaries. You know, it was like that. <laughs> If it was mixed with uh, Brazil, mixed with Star Wars, and mixed with Labyrinth, only without any of the joy, any of the wit, or the uh, Bowie factor of the latter three, anyway. Um, so that said, it's not a complete waste of time, because as shallow as it does come across, I think it does strive to include some deeper meaning to certain parts of it, or certain aspects. Um, so, you know, the moment Jupiter is attacked, and she's lying on the, the bed and, uh, you know, after being gassed during what I'm sure would be quite a traumatic process, I thought it would go down a route suggesting the whole thing could be explained away as just in her head. You know, she's just been drugged and now she's seeing these weird aliens and a man who's got pointy ears and sharp teeth and he's just roller skating around the sky and stuff. But it kind of steers clear of that. Um, and, you know, the fact I'm saying it wasn't all a dream is a positive. Um, you know, the fact that I'm saying that is perhaps an indication of the quality I'm talking about, though. You know, to say that was one of the most positive aspects, that it wasn't all a dream in the end, I think that says quite a lot about the film. And there's other interesting aspects to the story, though, I guess. Uh, the gene splicing of people with animals, um, like Tatum and a wolf, and Sean Bean with the bee, and perhaps a weird elephant pilot chap who I think got the worst of it because he's got an elephant's face and can't seem to do anything but shout. Um, you know, at least... At least there's some subtext there about the way 
people are treated and the class system and oh look we look down on these people because they're lesser and there's the whole genetic engineering aspect of it and I don't know maybe I don't know. it felt like they were trying to include something there but it just wasn't tangible enough for me I didn't get anything meaningful out of it um and yeah so uh, yeah I'll try and wrap it up quickly though because otherwise this is going to turn into me going on a rant um I had to kind of sum it up I'd probably call it a, a, a sort of atrocious sci-fi medley. You know, one minute it's Soylent Green, the next it's Firefly or Serenity, and the next, like I say, it's going to some shit like Princess Bride. Um, not Princess Bride, that's a good film. That's a really good film. Princess Diaries. So, um, yeah, I don't know. So Boy, today I was disappointed with it. Boy, I wouldn't actually hate Princess Bride. There we go. No, that's retracted. We'll edit that out. No, we won't edit anything. Else, but, um, <laughs> okay. Um, if you allow me to retort, okay, you're wrong. Thank you. Okay, go ahead. Oh, <laughs> right. So, uh, no, yeah, but um, okay. So um, I saw you were sending um, saw it, uh, the last film of my giant Friday cinema marathon here, which is probably important for some reason. But no, I really, really like you for sending. Um, I came out of it a bit unsure to what I thought of it. Because, like, because there was kind of so much to take in, and my critical faculties weren't working as strong as they could have been. But the more I think back at it, the more and more I like it because of what it, because of what it does right. Uh, like, I will admit right now, just straight up, there are structural problems. There are major structural problems with this film. Um, specifically, I feel like it's missing an hour. Um, it's just hour, like heavily edited. I'll yeah, like that. strongly, yeah. just like cut down at the knees, either by the studio or charities or something. I'd say I can't wait to see um, the director's cut until um, I saw the state of Blu-rays that I was gone, girl, and realised, no, we'll never get a director's cut. They don't see mm. extras on DVDs anymore. Mm. Um, but, like, it's missing out. Specifically, it's missing the slowdown part. Like, the bit in between each series, like, where it builds on the world. Like, there's a really funny moment for, like, five minutes where it just turns into Brazil. Like, where, you know, yeah. where they're going, bureaucracy and that stuff. And it's great and funny. It needs it needed more stuff like that, basically, like more obvious attempts at fleshing out its world. But, but the Brazil segment that this like an ode to um, Brazil actually has Terry Gilliam in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of it is quite nice to see that honorary moment. You know, yeah. I appreciated that. They they realise you can see they realise they're borrowing lots of elements from lots of different stories, yeah. lots of different sci-fi films, um, and they're paying tribute to them more than they're ripping them off. That's definitely not a complaint. I just felt that they didn't really give the film its own identity. It was just a, a, a mess of different ideas. I, I don't know. I feel like it has. I feel like it manages to meld them together in a, in a way that creates a strong world that I feel is very kind of believable and well done. Like in the sense of I'd like to see more time, spend more time there, that kind of thing. Um, in a way, meshes um, high fantasy and high sci. Because essentially, what this is is a big, silly, earnest space opera. Like, that's what it is. Like, it's not that kind of space off from, like, say, way Guys the Galaxy is where it does it once, but then also has somebody sat there just kind of winking the entire time going like, yeah, this is dumb, isn't it? Like, this is, this is kind of somewhere where Chelsea comes to you and goes, we made a space opera! And, like, there's no catch, there's no hidden element here, right? It's just, we made a space opera! Yeah. Like, in the same way, the Speed Racer is, we made a live-action anime! Like, a live-action anime, kids' family film! Like, there's no irony or winking subtext like This is genuinely just a big, silly, completely earnest space opera mm-hmm. that also happens to be about how cats and the fucking devil. And I love it for that. It's different. It's refreshing and honest and pure in a way that a lot of cinema isn't nowadays. 
And it's such a, it's such a rubbish film, though. I mean, it's not, it's. Great I don't think it is. I, like, I admit, I admit that the narrative and that is like, like is strange and awkward. But the film, it, like, but the film itself, I feel like that feel, that world, the effects and stuff like that, it all works on that kind of level. I mean, like, admittedly, as a further deeper stuff other than the capitalism stuff, from that, I feel like it fails again purely for me down to the fact that it has clearly been edited to hell and back. But, um, but again, I love it for what it is. Again, too much of media nowadays, too many films nowadays and that are kind of just embarrassed to be, like, like honest, dishonest and that about its intentions. Like, you know, that's why you get musicals, but they're percent we're so sorry for being musicals. Like, romance films are so bloody serious about everything. Why sci-fi never cuts loose and has fun? Because it's worried about being labelled cheesy. And yeah. if something's cheesy, that's when the public turn off, besides the fact that the Fast and Furious series are ridiculously popular and successful, and their films are, are, are family is great. Like, if you have somebody south next to going, yeah, family's dumb, but not yet, but the family's really dumb. Like, when Don says family, the film believes that there. And the thing that when you ascending is here, going with that kind of ridiculous, silly earnestness and that there, it doesn't undercut it at any point there. I get your um, point, I get your point, but there's, there's still, like, the whole dialogue, it's got some of the worst dialogue from any film I've seen for about a year. It's all exposition dialogue, and the you performance... Want that? I, I, thought you want, I thought you wanted more about the romance, because I will, I will copy it yet. Yeah, I was literally going to bring on, move on to the romance, because the unrequited romantic relationship between Tatum and Kunis, it's got about as much sexual tension in it as, like, Receiving a text from your grandma. It's it just doesn't a, help. It doesn't help if the pair of them seem faintly embarrassed about the whole thing. Yeah, it's just you know, awful. It's really bad. And I like Tatum. I think he's turning into a very good actor. I saw him in. Don't ask why I watched it. I saw him in a film called She's the Man the other day, where he's like this young teenager in a school and just. That one with Amanda Bynes. Vinnie uh, Jones. Yeah, possibly. Yeah, 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 we've all yeah. seen that. It's actually a good film. You don't need it's to. It's not bad. It's not bad. It was okay for what it is. Um. But, you know, in that, even, like, watching him there, you can see that he's born to play these type of roles. He's born to be in a massive space opera like this, where everyone just has fun. But nobody looks like they're having fun. That's the problem. Maybe, at a push, I would concede, perhaps, Eddie Redmayne is completely aware of the sort of film he's making. Yeah, and Eddie Redmayne's Red Red good in this. And by good, I mean terrible. And by terrible, I mean brilliant! He was... It's a cult film performance, I think, is what you yeah. could call it. Uh, I, I, uh, I've heard somebody say, like, that um, Eddie Redmayne should just do Gary Oldman villain roles from now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, like, Sean Bean seems fine to be here as well. But, like, that's the thing, like, I, I recognise about our flaws in film, but I feel like it gets enough, right, like, with creature designs, with the world itself. I, I love the little... Um, tiny little detail of how old laser sound effects sound like something that a kid might make, mm. and especially how Kane's own gun itself sounds oh, like its laser fire sounds like a bark. So like I, like little individual details about it set my kind of like inner eight year old amount just like off there. Um, again, I really I, I love what Wachowski is trying to do. I don't think they're completely successful in pulling it off. Again, for me, mostly because it's been it's been cut down badly. But for what it is, I think it's really really good fun. And I guarantee you in 10 years' time, this is going to be Speed Racer again. <laughs> like, like, no, like, no, like, seriously, at some point, this will be re-evaluated and people will come... Because um, right now, it's being trashed roundly. Like, again, not for reasons of structural problems and that, but purely just some people who don't seem to get it, in that kind of sense. Like, again, I will admit there are problems, but that's not what most people are complaining about. But I get, I get what it's trying yeah. to do. I just think it does absolutely everything really badly. It's really dull. The action sequences in it are just... They're actually really inconsistent. Some of the scenes 
look very good. You've got Tatum flying around on his gravity-defying rollerblades, and uh, it looks pretty cool, some of them, you know. Then you get other bits with, like, spaceships flying around Chicago, having a shootout, and it looks worse than things I've seen in Michael Bay films. It looks worse than stuff I've seen in Transformers. And I really, you know, considering the Wachowski's revolutionised the action film genre with The Matrix, there's no excuse, I don't think, for them yeah, to make Yeah, again, again I, do feel, I do feel a lot of these films are just from some kind of butchering in the editing during the last eight months, because, as we all remember, it was, it was delayed at the very last minute from June of last year, February of this year. Well, that kind of makes sense. They haven't really got as much of an excuse, because, you know, at the end of the day, anything that they admitted to someone they're happy with. Yeah. yeah, again, I, again, look, I really, really dig this movie. I really enjoy what it's, I get what it's going for. I think it is mostly, not completely, but mostly successful like what it goes for. And I'm glad Wachowski's got one last attempt, like, nice to do one last big giant $175 million blowout here because they are never getting a blank check again after this. No, never. I don't they, think they are, they are done. They are done now. That's it. They're finished. And okay. that makes me sad. Well, that makes me sad because nobody else is making sci-fi like Wachowski and nobody will now. Um, again, I, again, I'm, I feel glad about how it turned out. You, you didn't. We'll have to agree to, we'll have to, in the civil, polite way that parents resolve issues, arguing between kids, we'll just have to agree to disagree on this one. Yeah. Okay, well, from Jupiter Ascending to the Shaun the Sheep movie, which Callum has seen uh, in his quest to see every single animated film ever made, I think. Mostly, uh, mostly every film that comes into cinemas, except horror, but we're getting there. I might, go, I might actually try and go and see It Follows in the cinema at the end of the month as well, assuming there's a that's a, that's a small amount of jump scares that I think there will be. So, anyway, show me sheet. Sorry, going off that tangent. So, new film from Artban Animations, whose resume I really don't need to say, but I'm going to say anyway, so it always makes me happy. Wallace and Gromit, Chicken Run, Rex for Run, Creature Comfort, the Peter Gabriel Sledgehammer video, Angry Kid, you like that sort of thing. The Pirates and the Adventure of Scientists, After Christmas, more. Right, it's like they are fucking national treasures, basically. Um, and this is the new film from them, an adaptation of their TV series, of the same name, written and directed by Richard Starzak, who did the show, and Mark Burton, who is a writer who's been in and out of Art Man and DreamWorks projects for the past decade. Um, so, Sean is a sheep on a farm owned by the farmer. And his, and as we start the film, he has life good, like, you know, it's sheep and his flock, and the farmer's dog, Bitzer, Bitzer, how you pronounce it. Um, you know, all, all together, they're all big, loving, happy family who have fun and they're, you know, doing their day-to-day business. But at some point, things become routine. They become stale. And therefore, life kind of turns into this endless slog for everybody. Wanting a break from a daily routine, Sean manages to get help convince your flock to, um, Knock out, like, put the farmer to sleep for a day, like they can have a day off. And then hilarious comedy circumstances conspire to send the farmer trundling off into the big city, uh, where he ends up sustaining memory loss and wandering around the big city alone and lost. So it's up to Sean, the flock, and Bitezer to go into the big city and find him and bring him back home so they can get their family back again. Whilst also evading the, uh, the overzealous animal control expert, A. Trumper. Uh, Feel free to laugh at that. <laughs> like, you, you won't be full of laughter, okay? Um, and, yeah, that's basically it. That, that's, like, that's the plot of Sean Machine. It is a, it, like, it's, 
it decidedly doesn't seem to, on the surface, reinvent any wheels. Like, it doesn't seem to do anything particularly different, anything particularly grand or big. But in its own way, itself is actually really dare, quietly daring and different to anything else that's on the market right now. Because much like Paddington, um, it acts very much as a deliberate pushback against the bloated, dark, serialized excess that um, has become modern family filmmaking. Like, specifically, um, notice how most animated films nowadays, even ones I enjoy here, Matt, and that you enjoy, you must admit here, always have big life or death world, like, you know, world, possibly world-ending struggles. Like, you know, big stakes, huge stakes. And then, you know, the action figures are loud and big, and the effect is all about throwing as much money onto the screen and seeing what comes next. Um, or family, or like, you know, standard live-action family filmmaking, which is mostly just moved up to 12A, you know, dark with these serialized young adult adaptations nowadays, or superheroes, because that's what money is. And Trauma Sheep is a, a deliberate antithesis about that. It's instead a small, intimate, character-focused, like, Stakes are tiny, there's maybe about three or four members of the main cast there, everything else is tiny, like three or four members of the main cast, which is Sean Bites of the Farmer and Trumper. Um, and it's all kind of in there, it doesn't artificially inflate the stakes, any chase sequences and action scenes and that are just done through physical comedy and you know, small scale sequences and that instead of giant, big, huge set pieces. And that's daring because, again, a studio with much less of a... Um, confidence in a product would have added that excess, you know, would have pumped up the runtime from what is a very small and fast 85 minutes to something much longer. Um, or is it even, I think it's only 75 minutes actually, but you know what I mean. Um, like, you know, it would have tried to throw in tons of pop culture references and song cues and stuff like that, but no, instead, Shomashi is quite small intimate and free of any excess, which includes dialogue. <laughs> there is no dialogue in Shomashi. Uh, well, there is dialogue, but it's mostly like, you know, like, there is dialogue, it's, you know, like, yeah, stuff like that and animal noises. Um, instead, there's no, otherwise, it's no dialogue. This is how it was in the TV series, but, again, a lesser studio would have freaked at putting that on into the big screen and shoved voices in there anyway. Um, DreamWorks, um, Stallion of Simmerman, um, which I covered in the retrospective a long while back in that, would mostly have been a silent film. You know, the animals themselves don't talk until somebody at the studio got terrified and added a voice of innovation that told you all the thoughts, of course, anyway. Um, or, you know, let's not forget Tom and Joe the movie, which admittedly was 20 years ago, but, you know, wounds that deep just don't heal sometimes, folks. Um, I would assume the fact that you aren't laughing means you have not seen Tom and Joe the movie. Don't think so. No. Be glad, okay? That's all I'm going to say. Be very, very glad. Unless you want to see what Tom and Jerry in a really bad Disney knockoff where they talk like. Um, yes, I have, because I remember now they were talking for it, and I thought, what the hell is going on here? Yeah, basically. <laughs> yeah, no, like, no dialogue. So instead, it, so instead, more emphasis is placed on jokes that everybody can get. You know, lots of big, silly, physical, you know, lots of good physical humour, um, focusing on animation, facial reactions. The music as well gets an extra special occurrence because you know it has to match character action probably you know, like kind of Mickey Mouse thing from back in um, early Disney days. Um obviously even little late motifs like um whenever Trumper comes on the scene, like you know, when he makes an appearance to catch somebody, he's always introduced by this giant ha- hard rock guitar squeal, you know, you know, power chords and you know, and say and sit and start lyrics about how great he is, you know, kind of that big overblown pomposity there. Um incidentally with guitars played by Tim Wheeler of Ash. 
which I saw on the credit and immediately kicked myself for not recognizing. <laughs> uh, like that. So that the music gets extra emphasis and the music is really, really good. Because um, it's also got this unique tinge to it itself as well. It's this kind of like slightly country, low-key, happy, light affair, able to go a bit darker when necessary. Um, and then also the animation. Um, Leica have made, Leica of the Box Trolls, Paranorman and Coraline have made great strides in the art of stop motion. Um, you know, expanding the scale, putting in CG, um, using 3D printers to help do facial expressions. And that, like, yeah, they've done great things with it, huge medium awesome things, but I will still always take Ardman every time. I, <laughs> there's just, like, something about Ardman that works. There's kind of a warmth to proceedings, like there's a weight when characters move, like, Whereas Leica's look effortless and light and Ardman looks like there's genuine effort in every single break. Like there's, like there's a weight when people walk. Like as if you can physically see the thumbs just put, like, you know, pushing down on their heads and that each time. And it does wonders here. Facial expressions are fantastic. The walking animations look stunning. They have weight. Uh, there's proper speed into everything. It looks outstanding. And again, the scale is always small, intimate, camera close. And because of that smaller scale, it means that it does wonders of storyboarding. Like, there's tons of visual gags purely from how, it, like, the camera sets up images and stuff like that. Like, not as much as in, say, Water Bomb and Coastal Whereabouts. I mean, there might be. I'd need to watch it several more times and have a pause button, like, you know, ready to notice these kinds of things. But enough there, but there's way more effort in there than there is in most normal animated films I've seen nowadays. Um, yeah, that's why it's, it's kind of a film that is exactly what you expect, essentially, but in its own way is also far greater than some of its It is extremely funny, um, surprisingly genuinely heartwarming, and like pretty much nothing else on the market right now, it is another huge home run for our animations, and you should all go and see this film immediately. Like, I know there'll be a lot of, you know, grown-ups out there who'll be like, yeah, I, I wouldn't be called dead in the cinema seeing this and that, but I would be the only person in my screening a lot more better. Mother and the daughter, her mother had brought her daughter there as well to be early screening so she could see it. Um, and I was sat there laughing along perfectly finding it with a toss. So, like, everybody, everybody should go see this. This is family filmmaking in the truest sense, and you do not want to miss it. It's fantastic. Okay, excellent. Um, on to the next film then, which is one seen by all three of us, and it is the film that's caused much controversy, uh, The Interview. Couldn't have had Probably four more different new releases to review. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking that earlier. They are all very uh, different. So it's a mental sci-fi film, a children's animated film, uh, a Seth Rogen comedy, and um, a, a, a biopic of, of Martin Luther King. Um, very, very ranging. Eclectic. Covering all my pieces. <laughs> yes. Just, just the kind of stuff we offer here on Felt. <laughs> um, it's got a uniqueness here and a variety, but we won't get next week. Yeah, yeah <laughs> definitely. Uh, anyway, uh, so the interview, which uh, is a comedy starring Seth Rogen and James Franco um, as two journalists who have to assassinate the leader of North Korea. This film is probably more famous for the uh, controversy it caused um, between North Korea and the US than the actual film itself. Um, it is also setting up expectations that it can't meet because it's not trying to meet it. Like, from the whole year of it blew up at the end of last year, most people probably went in thinking, oh, this is going to be some kind of big 
like, this has got to be something big, it's got to be something daring, and instead what it is, it's just a big, loud, dumb, Seth Rogen, Evan Goldberg comedy. Mm. It's, it's not kind of some cutting political satire, which yeah. maybe some people are expecting because of the controversy it's caused, and because of, um, you know, North Korea issuing threats against um, any cinema chain that showed the film and, and things like that. Um, but it's not some kind of cutting political satire, maybe like in in the loop or something like that. It's just the... Um, it's not even the same sort of satire from Team America, you know? No. <laughs> There's nothing. There is absolutely no substance or any point whatsoever, as far as I could tell, to the interview. It is... Just, I was looking for things. I thought, okay, maybe they're trying to put a bit in here about celebrity culture, or the way that people are worshipped in the media, or propaganda, how propaganda in, in Korea is a bit like how it's used in America, isn't it? No, there's nothing. There's absolutely no substance to this. It is just, like you say, a chance for Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg to make another film, stick their mate, um, uh, James Franco in, and then, voila, there we go, hit. And that's the, the, if anything, the, 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 the censorship and... Well, they didn't get censored in the end, did they? What was it? There were some some cinemas who just decided they weren't going to show the film rather than the studios refusing to distribute it? No, yeah, there was a whole mess. Like, it, like, studio, like, there were some cinemas that pulled it, that they refused to show it, and then the studio had to pull it itself. Yeah. The it came back out again, and then it moved to VOD, and... But it became really highly torrented, and it became popular because of that, I think. And now it's on well, like Netflix in a few regions. It's uh, in the cinemas here finally after being out in America last year. It's yeah, I don't know. It seems to have done it a lot of good um, because I've seen it and I would never have dreamed of watching a fucking comedy like this before. I don't know. I feel like yeah. it hurts it. I feel like the controversy hurts it just as much as well because again, unreasonable expectations and then VOD tickets, which essentially crippled how much it could have actually earned. Mm. As well, it probably wouldn't have earned too much anyway, but um, like even worse now than that. <sighs> That's just a whole mess. Let's, let's not talk about that mess. Let's just okay. talk about the film itself. Okay. I mean, Steve, it's, what do you it's, think? It's it's not even that good, <laughs> and I've liked and I've liked the last few kind of, of Seth Rogen comedies I've seen. So, uh, Bad Neighbors and This Is the End probably been the last two that I've seen. Well, I've really enjoyed getting a sequel. Which one getting a sequel? Sorry. Bad neighbours. Really? Who hmm. made money? Uh, but anyway, you know, I enjoyed, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed This Is The End even more. Um, you know, I, I yeah. do like Seth Rogen and that stable of, of comedy writers or filmmakers, whichever way you want to look at it. Um, but this one was just not, it was just a bit... I think myself, really I myself giggling at it more than I thought I was going to be, to be honest. I I was chuckling away at some scenes, like, just stupid little throwaway gags. Like, when he first meets... When James Franco's character, Dave Skylock, first meets the North Koreans and he's, he's say, saying goodbye and then he says, Kadichiwa. Just stuff like yeah. that. Just, it tickled me. I thought it was quite funny. But it's not a laugh. It, I wasn't, like, with ticklingly funny kind of film for me. I just... Yeah. Um, yeah, um, not probably like a root cause of that is that um, unlike this is the end, especially um, this one wasn't actually scripted by um, Rogan and Goldberg. Like okay. they came, like they came up with the story um, alongside somebody else whose name I'm getting up right now. <laughs> so much for my, so much for me sitting here insisting that you know Lambert New York preparation Dan Sterling. 
Okay. Um, but then Sterling himself is the only guy who actually wrote the screenplay. Which admittedly means little in these films because of how much improvisation there is. But at the same time, probably explain something. Like, I'm, I'm fine. I laughed. I, I laughed a fair, not as much as I'd like to have, not as much as I usually do at Rogue and Goldberg comedies, but enough to feel like I haven't wasted my time. Uh, I didn't waste my time. I, I, I do think it has, gets enough jokes and enough points and that's great about, um, Skylark himself and, and that nature of celebrity culture. Um, cause most, cause it's actually as respectful as it can be, basically, for North Korea situation. Like, when it, like, when it does pull jokes, the jokes are instead either on the Kim family or, mm-hmm. uh, or Dave himself, which then ends up causing a problem in the final third when it tries to make, make you feel pathos and pity for a guy that has been the butt of, and, of, has been the butt of guys and mostly asked your, and has been asked, and the film, and a character of the film is asked to, you know, the audience throw hate on, but in a lovable kind of way for most of them, like. Um, but they're like, it, it's, it's fine, I, I, I laughed, you know. I mean, I would also really prefer it for once if I could get an American mainstream comedy where the gag, central gag wasn't, these two guys love each other, but not in a gay way, no, no, they like women, they do. But they're just close enough to be gay men. They could be gay, but they're not because they love them women. Look at those women they're gonna have sex with. But, uh, but they kind of played on that intentionally though. There was a, there was a few yeah. gags where they were like, yeah, we, we know this is following a traditional yeah. Uh, narrative of this sort of film, and then they they recognise it and point it out and make yeah. fun of it themselves, which is kind of fine, but it does mean it is actually just following that. Yeah, like, yeah. I, I feel like it's a like it's material that's not particularly funny, but is elevated by a very good cast. Like Seth Rogen, I find is great as always. Um, I feel like Franco, until you know his Papo stuff and that, does a great job of playing this kind of pompous, arrogant, yeah, like, you know, love to hate douche. Lizzie Kaplan's in here, and Lizzie Kaplan is always nice to see. Um, and then also Randall Park plays um, Kim Jong-un and that and stuff, and he's really, really good in that role there as well. Um, and also kind of Diana Bang as well, um, in a mostly serious role as a North Korean commander who's suddenly been struck with a guilty conscience. Well, um, Cred- credit was- to her? She didn't really, I don't think she, that, that she had much to do, to be honest. Well, she did well with what she had. Yeah, but, yeah, like, again... I, I laugh, not in like not as much as I did at other films and that, but enough to feel like it's worth my time. Also, it didn't have a demon, a sudden out of nowhere and tasteless demon rape scene in it, so I'm gonna put it on the exact same level as this at the end there. <laughs> okay. Although it doesn't have any Battery Boys cameos, so it's also a lesser film. Yeah, but a lot of um, who's the, the singer Katy Perry? A lot of Katy good Perry. Luck. Yeah. So I'm also really annoyed as well because a week before I have a DreamWorks piece, I've done Madagascar 3 and that commonly uses fireworks as well. Uh. It's just gotten out of my head. <laughs> and then here's the interview to ram it back in somewhere. Yeah. Okay, well, uh, that is the interview. On to our final film, finally, for new releases. Um, that is Selma, um, about... Um, the 1965 Selma to Montgomery voting rights marches in the civil rights movement in the US led by Martin Luther King played by David Oyelowo <laughs> I think I, 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 I'm pretty sure I mispronounced that in every possible way you could when I did screen one last night so I'm pretty sure I'm racist as well don't worry <laughs> uh, well, I've heard it as David Oyelowo but it's, it's L-O so I think I don't know Oyelowo I don't know I, I don't mean any. I don't mean any offence by it. Um, he plays Martin Luther King. Tom Wilkinson plays Lyndon B. Johnson. Carmen Jogo plays um, Coretta Scott King. Um, 
um, Tim Roth plays um, Alabama state governor. Plays oh, the Alabama George state. Wallace, yeah. George Wallace, yeah. And then also appearances from Common, Cuba Gooding Jr., Oprah Winfrey, just like Martin Sheen at one point as well. Like yeah, Giovanni Rabisi. I, I haven't uh, seen this, but I could have guessed Oprah Winfrey was going to pop up in a... Well, well I, don't, I don't want to kind of sound disparaging or anything like that, but any any film, with the exception of possibly 12 years of slate, any film that involves um, black civil rights or, or anything like that, Cuba Gooding Jr. and Oprah Winfrey do tend to pop up in them now. I mean, they were both in The Butler as well, which is it, which was um, yeah, had, you know, and well, Oprah Winfrey but, was all way back in what's the um, the colour purple and stuff like that. Ever since then, I yeah. think she's um, I mean, Oprah Winfrey does have some pedigree as an actress when she's oh, yeah, actually some acting. Just but, think that it's yeah, yeah. Also, to be to be in The Butler there as well. Um, who's director? That was also Lee Daniels was going to direct Salma until he dropped out to do Butler instead. So instead, we have Ava DuVernay who also rewrote 90% of the original script, but it's not credited because writers guild restrictions, ladies and gentlemen, and others. Mm. I'd like I should mention that there, because that's actually going to form a lot of my basis for what I end up saying about this film, but Steve, you're supposed to be here. Sorry, I'm hijacking you again. That's fine. <laughs> I, I thought it was really good. It, it told, it told, you know, it engrossed me in a part of history that I don't know too much about. Obviously, the civil rights movement in America was very different and much bigger than what it was in the UK. So it's not something that we tend to be taught too much in in schools here, um, or, you know, at GCSE or A-level kind of history. Uh, we don't tend to learn too much about it. But it certainly interested me in that. I thought David Oluwero, uh, him, he was, he was excellent as Martin Luther King and most, if not all, of the supporting cast um, because that's essentially all that ev- everyone else in this film was really uh, were excellent as well. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think you can pay it much higher praise than, than saying it makes you interested in that part of history. I want you to kind of know more about it. And on the other side of the, the same coin, making you kind of appalled at the way that so recently certain people were treated in kind of uh, civilised Western world. Hmm. I've heard that, um, I don't know if, if you know this, Steve or, or Callum, did, the scripts for um, the speeches were rewritten, weren't they? Yes, they because use... they, yeah, the estate didn't give them the right to it, and said that was tied up with a supposed Steven Spielberg directed by Office of Martin Luther King Jr. at some point yeah. in the future. But missing Steven Spielberg, who has 75 projects on the go at any one time, <laughs> but no, Bill. I, I, I wouldn't have known, like, unless, um, like, until I was told afterwards about because they are, like, they just seem to just nail that essence down immediately, and it's kind of sense that, like, Divine really nails that kind of speech way, like, speech on yeah. talks in freeze, this powerful voice there, that kind of way. Um, I am now going to attempt to try and give this even more praise than Steve did, because I think this is a phenomenal, moving, and extremely important film. Um, specifically, there are two reasons for me why this film is so utterly important. Well, I mean, there's a lot more than that. I mean, the film is technically, like, I can't find fault with it personally. Um, at this moment in time, anyway, in that. Uh, but the two reasons specifically for me are, the first is it refuses to give the audience an out. Like, most films about race, and especially about racism, are done through the perspective and lens of a white person. 
because you know that's people usually make them, and also majority of the audience are white, and therefore the consensus, the idea is that you need to give people an in or some kind of way out, and that things get bad. So that's why you know they usually give you some kind of kindly white hero who sympathizes and helps lead on, or you have, or they give some kind of easy conclusion, you know, like to proceedings like I'm. Which is where the whole kind of joke of, and then racism was solved. Like, obviously, films don't, like, obviously, these films don't end with, and then racism was solved. But crash, like, because, crash almost does. Crash well, yeah, almost, does. like, a, a split second from actually saying that. Yeah, but, like, um, uh, yeah, but, um, like, they, but they kind of give that same kind of, uh, just fully uplifting conclusion of, and, but don't worry, folks, that was in the past. Everything's going to be okay. Like, it gives you an out. It kind of, like, it gives you an out. Selma hmm. refuses to do that. But it refuses to give you that out. The perspective at all times is, it's like, our main perspective, our main input at all times is through King and his followers and black, and the black um, inhabitants of Selma, of Selma, Alabama. Um, there is no kindly white hero, there is no easy conclusion, nothing there. But I think this is why um, the film gets a lot of, it's been getting a lot of shit for um, what it does with Lyndon B. Johnson. Because in real life, he has been noted as being a supporter of civil rights and somebody who worked hard to do that. But the film itself portrays him instead as somebody who is who puts it low on his agenda and may even be slight, and may even be leaning more thanks to his passivity into being against the thing. This is not important because it doesn't important to him. Um, but so, I mean, I mean, with with that quickly, the way I saw that in the film. Um, and I don't know if this is accurate towards him in his presidency, was that he was he was supportive of, of, of black civil rights, and he was supportive of them getting the vote and everything that Martin Luther King wanted, but he more needed to go for policies that would get him or his party to vote at the next election, yeah. which from the, film, from the film implied it was coming up very soon. So yeah. while, he was, while he was supportive of this, other things would get him back in as president and he was more supportive of them. Yeah. Um, that, that's the way I took it anyway. Yeah, but again, but again as well, it's also worked well because showing him that kind of self-interest again refused to give the audience an out because if they, yeah. had, if they had 10 hundred scenes of King and Johnson just side from each other, Johnson going, yep, you're right, I'm going to do everything I can in your power to, help, to get you through here, Matt, then that would undercut the whole point of the film. Yeah. In the same, in the same way as well, but King himself is portrayed as a, is not as a saint but at the same time, not himself, but like he's portrayed as a man, basically. Yeah. And like a great man, but not the sole guy responsible and not infallible. Like there is an no, amazing, he's, he's, yeah. there's an amazing conversation in a car late, like in a car later on, which I won't go into spoilers in there, but which just perfectly reminds you again that this is, was a man instead of some kind of mythical being. But, um, it's just one of that. And also adding on to that writing as well, um, Martin Sheen pops up at some point as well. And, because, you know, Martin Sheen from West Wing, he turns up, you think, he's going to kind of, he's going to kind of go, screw the rules, I'm going to do what's right, and that's that. But, no, he doesn't, because he couldn't. And again, that's the whole point, that kind of is being part of this system that perpetuates this, this awful, awful behaviour. Is that there? Um, the conclusion itself, again, not supposing that, obviously ends in a relatively happy way, but constantly undercuts what could have been, like, overwhelming positivity by reminding you, no, this was only a minor bill, and we still have a long way to go. Like, yeah, the, again, the end, like, the, I, I mean, I mean, the end of the film. I mean, I suppose most people, I suppose the, the majority of people will know what happened to Martin Luther King. Ultimately, I don't think saying that he was assassinated is really a spoiler to the film. 
it, it, that doesn't take place in the film itself. But the, the end of the film makes it quite clear that although progress had certainly been made by the, the date that the film ended on, you know, in the actual film, mm-hmm. there was still decades worth of work to go in the civil rights movement that ultimately ended up with a black man in the White House. And there still, there still is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's still, yeah, it's, yeah. Like we remind you of that, and again, a wonderful little conclusion there as well, again, if you skip out. And even the camera work as well, like, specifically the camera work pretty much at all times is down on the ground in a close up and keeps you right there, <coughs> next to, like, next to everybody. Like, keeps you there, forces you to have to stay close and stay with these people, um, through the violence, through the terror, through the sermons and things like There's a wonderful sequence, uh, little scene where Tim Roth is ranting to his, um, like, to the state's sheriff, I believe. Um, like, I've had all these, these enners coming around here trying to, ha- trying to hassle me, trying to hassle my, my constituency, my best. But ca- it's framed in a way where the camera is looking up at him, his face takes the majority of the frame, and he is shouting this right at you. Like, he's obviously talking to somebody off frame, but it's like he's talking at you, making you complicit in this conversation, and you cannot look away because I've done the few yeah. like you do that. It's, again, Fiercely kind of just refusing, that refusing to give it an out is amazing. And the second reason is because of Diverney, is because of Ava Diverney's direction, which is stellar and again, unique, because it comes with that black voice there. This is a kind of story that only, that I feel only a black filmmaker can tell in this way, in this kind of rough, uncompromising kind of way. Again, with the cam, the camera work listed there, um, sound work, you know, music cues and the way, and the way she lays on things, and especially for dialogue with it. Everybody in the film, well, most characters in way, talk in this very slow, deliberate manner, where they clearly are putting a lot of thought into what they're saying, because they know that if they say the wrong thing at the wrong time, everything will come crashing down for them. So they're being deliberate, and therefore that works in the film's pacing as well, like, kind of, like, pauses in this film need a shit ton, like, a ton in there as well, like, because you can just tell everybody yeah. trying to really think hard of what they're saying as well. It's a stunning, stunningly directed film, and I am... I am now, like, I purposely held off on referring at any point during the Oscars, um, like, you know, Oscar calls and that, on the Ava DeVarney snub, because I didn't want to until I'd seen the film, and now I am fuming that Morton Tilden's The Imitation Game is apparently because a better director than Ava DeVarney, who does um, incredible work here. Um, in the same way, well, that David, yeah, David Ayoel deserves a lead actor no- nomination, that Carmen Jogo does great, great work as director Scott King, as well, that it's just a stunning, stunning, stunning film. Well, and it I, it's violent, powerful, important, and everybody should see it. It's fantastic. I think I think one thing it does well as well as, as well as like you say, it's it's telling it for uh, with a black, uh, the, uh, you know, black people's voice. It doesn't kind of make the white person out to be all encompassing evil and bad and. I mean, obviously, there are there are white people in the film. Tim Ross' character, Greg Wallace, um, and he's kind of senior person that he talks to in the film. That I can't remember the character's name. Um, you know, right down to the person at the courthouse when you see. I think was it Oprah Winfrey's character? She goes to register yeah. to vote right at the start of the film, and you know, she said, "I filled in the form right this time." And he goes, I'll tell you when it's right, and then you know, she go. How many state judges are there, or something? And she says the right amount, and he goes, "Name them." And if she can't name them, he's not, she's not getting the right to vote and kind of down to little things like that. But then you've got Lyndon B. Johnson, who I don't think was particularly a bad guy, 
um, just kind of in a difficult situation and played things wrong. Uh, you've got the white people who joined the marches and joined the campaigns and everything like that. Um, the important which, thing I feel, though, is that obviously is that some like notes from that, but at the same time doesn't make them a focus. Again, no, they're not, they're not, not bad, again, this isn't their tale, this isn't their fight, they're just helping. It's a reminder of, yes, there were people, but overall, in the end, they weren't the main reason. No, but I, I, I yeah. think, and it, it is quite difficult, without saying this and coming across wrong, that there are, not this film, certainly, but there are certain films, uh, or even documentaries, from uh, the black person's perspective that make white people as this era or previous to this area out to be just this all-encompassing evil where there is no good to come from it they are all evil and horrible and dangerous which isn't quite the truth um, and shouldn't be portrayed that way and this film definitely doesn't do that but it doesn't put them as kind of the centre of the hero um, to ride in and save the day yeah because again well, this is the film this a lot of people seem to think, or at least from marketing that anyway, might think this is a Martin Luther King biopic, and it's not. It's, it's instead just a film about racism locked into this bit that happens to be from Martin Luther King's perspective. Um, which I feel like the best thing I can encompass to this film, it, at least the power and the way it treats black boys, is specifically through this one bit. Because the film opens <coughs> pretty much with the bombing of the, of the Birmingham church. Yeah. But, Instead of just showing the bombing or the aftermath, instead the film does this thing, this really kind of thing, where for 90 seconds it shows you the children who are normally relegated to a statistic, like to a shock statistic there, as people. Like they're just going around, having a conversation, being themselves, and then, boom, there. It's quite, it is quite a shocking scene, isn't it? And it's so early on in the film as well. It's quite unexpected, especially if you don't know the history. Yeah. But it's also, and it's also as great, like, a kind of mission statement as any, to just remind you of, to remind you, this is a film that's going to tell you about, like, as, that's going to represent everybody as people, instead of statistics. And again, I can't say enough good things about this film. It is fantastic, and it's, it's clearly not going to win at the Oscars, but... God no, but it, it's, it should certainly be receiving more Oscar buzz, and, and, and Dave should definitely be in the best actor category, along with Jake Gyllenhaal for Nightcrawler, and it's... Mm. Definitely a shame that they're not. Um, I mean, I'd certainly replace replace uh, Benedict Cumberbatch for Imitation Game with with at least one of those two if I could. Um, put cinematography in there as well, Selma. Um, yeah, the cinematography. I put it under direction. And, sorry, ha- sorry. Hang on. We've been about to stumble into next week's topics now. But I'm not on. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. No. Everybody should go and see Selma. Yeah. I mean, to, to even give it a, a bit more credibility. Uh, of it's got a 98% rating based on nearly 200 reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. So I mean that kind of shows the, the gravitas that it it gets. If you, if um, you can see it, if you can see it, because I've heard that a lot of the cinemas across the country aren't showing it or putting it on at really late meeting for stupid, stupid reasons, then go see it. And if you mm-hmm. don't, I'll out and track it down anyway. I must admit the cinema local to me, which is an Empire Cinema in in Pool. They were showing it just on the release weekend, just four times a day, only once in the evening, and every time it is only in their studio screens, which are like about a third the size of a normal screen. <laughs> uh, not, not the actual screen, the amount of seats. Um, oh, yeah. So it wasn't getting exactly the best release. I think it was sort of... You know, it wasn't showing a mic in the world at all. Not at all. No. I've got the Hobbit no. there. <laughs> Probably. No. And, and, and a film as, as kind of important as this, um, should probably be shown on a much 
wider release and one that's more accessible as well. Um, in the in the kind of the same way that, that you know, Twelve Years a Slave had such a big release, it should be having one similar to that because it, it tells uh, oh, equally, I'd say, as an important story or, or part of history. Before, like, before we move on now, uh, Jane, this is Jane Blackman before we move on here. Um, we rag on the BBFC a lot. Like, I do on Twitter, we do on this podcast and I hear. But I want to just give them genuine bravo praise for making, for getting to make Selma a 12A. Well, as well. Like, that way to stop, like, cause that way it can be shown, you know, schools and that for education, that, get, you know, you can take younger kids on that for education. Essentially, like, to open it up more instead of mocking it off to yeah. sexual people. Like, Again, because, you know, there's, all, there's some violence in here, lots of swearing, lots of racial episodes, but again, it's <coughs> a film that needs to be seen by people there, and so I do have to report them for bending the rules here and putting it in a way where everybody can see it. So, good no, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a very good point, because there is a fair bit of quite graphic violence in the film. I mean, not kind of brutal like you'd see in a Tarantino film, of course, mm. but there is quite graphic violence in this film. Um, you know, quite horrible violence in this film. Um, but like you say, it is, it is good that they've made it 12A, so it's more accessible for children to see, obviously under the correct supervision, because it is important that they're shown films like this. Yeah. You know, I cannot wait to see what Giovanni does next now, after this. Like, hopefully this has given him enough clout to go off and make more films she wants to. Yeah. Um, anyway, that's all for our new releases. You'll be glad to hear that we're nearly uh, at the end of the podcast <laughs> and going to shut up soon. Although, if you've bored of us, you could have turned off. So, um, anyway. We should insult the listeners like that. Though. Your own time, you're wasting. Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. Uh, recommendations for the week ahead. I'm going for Netflix UK and the Breaking Bad spin-off Better Call Saul is now on there. Have you watched it yet? I have watched the first one and it was okay. Um, but obviously I appreciate series sometimes need a couple of episodes to set the scene and get going. Um, so I'm going to stick with it for a few more. Yeah, I really like it. I'm definitely sticking with it. Um, Owen, what are you recommending? Uh, I'm recommending uh, a film, Blind, almost, because uh, it's The Wind Rises. Studio Ghibli's yeah. uh, film by Hayao Miyazaki. Um, it's on Film 4 on Friday at 6.35pm. They did show it a week or two ago, and I've recorded it. I just haven't found time to watch it yet. So this, if you missed it the first time round, this is your second chance to catch it. And I believe, although I'm not 100% certain, the film they showed last time was English dubbed. This time, I think, is uh, in Japanese with subtitles. So I know some people get really fussy watching Studio Ghibli films when they're dubbed, even though I think the dubbing's pretty good on Ghibli films. Um, yep. But there you go. Emily Blunt in there as well, so. <laughs> yeah, usually Emily Blunt, Christian Bale, and all those lot, yeah. And Werner Herzog's in Wind Rises as well, in the dub. Oh, is he? Yeah, well, there yeah. you go. There's, there's another reason you should watch it. Yeah, uh, yeah, then, everybody should see Wind Rises if it actually came out in the, if it came out in the UK in the same year, but it came out in America, it would have been one of my films of the year. There we go. Hmm. Um, but my recommendation is some animation, obviously. <laughs> but, um, and it's, it's Hunchback and Archer Down 2 on Netflix. Um, no, I'm just kidding, it's not that. Um, the Book of Life. The Book of Life has just been released on Blu-ray um, this week. I believe this week in time of Valentine's Day. Um, it is a film by Jorge R. Gutierrez, who was previous of the TV, the 
short-lived and currently underrated TV series, El Tigre, The Adventures of Manny Rivera, and it is an absolutely gorgeous in both the metaphorical and visual senses, like seriously, look at this film, you need to just look at this film, it's outstandingly gorgeous. Uh, that kind of love romance fantasy story, which has this great shot of fresh air, it's got a very Mexican lens to it all there, and it's fantastic and criminally underrated, and you should all watch it. Okay, well that's all for us for this week then. Uh, Owen, what have we got next week? Next week we've got um, an Oscars preview. We're joined by uh, Paul Field and James Diamond. Paul is actually the guy who, I don't know if anyone was listening to the podcast this time last year, um, he submitted his predictions for uh, uh quiz for who's going to get the most nominations correct for um, for the Oscar ceremony. He won. So we've invited him onto the podcast this time. He's written for the website before, so we're all looking forward, forward to getting Paul on. And um, main release review, I'm kind of, I don't know if we're going to review it, but the big release is, of course, Fifty Shades of Grey. Ugh. Yeah, which I don't think I'm going to be seeing. But they I'm not from Valentine's Day. Yeah, exactly. And I have a friend like, coming up, and I've let them talk me into going on Valentine's Day. They think it will be hilarious. Well, I don't, I don't know why you go and watch that when porn is readily available on your laptop for nothing. Well, there's only, okay. there's only 15 minutes of sex scenes in a two-hour-long Fifty Shades of Grey film, most Steve, So I thought, well, I thought the book, I thought the book was pretty much written pornography. Pretty much, yeah. Plus, apparently, everybody involved in that film hates each other. Like, kind of the stars hate each other. They have no chemistry. The right, like the director and the writer of the novel clashed over everything. The sex scenes weren't any fun to shoot whatsoever, but basically, it sounds like a wonderful train wreck. Yeah. Well, it's going to be fun. Yeah, but it is an 18-rated film, and it's being shown... Like, we just talked about Selma. That wasn't shown at my cinema at all, at any point at any, during the day, or any screen, no matter the size of it. It wasn't shown at all. Um, Fifty Shades of Grey is on seven times a day. Well, Selma doesn't have two sequels coming hard and fast, so... Oh, that, that was very subtly done by Callum very good. Thank you. <laughs> um, but we're also going to review um, another film if we can make, find, uh, make time for it, uh, Predestination, which I think yes. some people have been looking forward to. Yes, it's mm. mental. Um, oh, okay, Callum, we've got Peppa Pig for the website. And Callum's <laughs> writing about Peppa Pig, there we go. Yes. Uh, Callum, would you like to plug your radio show and yeah. podcast before we go? Yes, um, you can follow myself on Twitter at Callum Patch, um, and also every Monday night at 9pm British Standard Time, because there may be a foreign listeners to our show, you never know, um, but on Whole Fire Radio, you can listen to Screen One, which is myself and my co-host Lucy Mears' weekly show about films, where we review films, talk about films, and generally most of our way through the CDs because we cannot do things in under an hour, apparently. <laughs> Next week, yeah, yeah, we will be reviewing Fifty Shades of Grey. We will also be reviewing Peppa Pig. Also, wait, are we doing them? Because I only force her to go to horror movies. And so then she just gets to choose the film she goes to see. <laughs> so yeah, that, okay. that will be, that'll be fun. L- listen in, please. I've got a lot of effort into that show, and I kind of I'm starting to get sick. So I promise that like, nobody's actually <laughs> Okay, Can uh, I also okay. plug a podcast before we go as well? This is turning into like the most epic length. Uh, episode Which is what happens when I'm on for some reason. Yeah, I don't know. Um, we just have a lot to chat about. But we haven't even done a what we've been watching section this week, and it's already this no. long. So, 
Um, yeah, Callum's the only person we have on this podcast who talks more than Jane. That's true. <laughs> You've beaten, beaten his record, I think. I'm sorry, have you I'm read it. my articles? I clearly cannot be consistent. <laughs> uh, but the podcast I was on this week came out on Monday. Um, it was with a guy called Tony Black, who I know through Letterboxd. And his uh, podcast is the uh, Black Hole Cinema podcast. And um, we were on that, we were talking about uh, Kingsman, Big Hero 6. Uh, they were talking about Selma as well, Inherent Voice, and I rant about Jupiter Ascending for a little bit again. So if you want to want to hear me rant about it again, and would rather do it in someone else's company for some bizarre reason. I don't know why you would, of course. But there you go, you can listen to me do that on the, the Black Hole Cinema podcast. Excellent. Uh, so, um, and one more thing we're going to plug in, kind of a little teaser trailer stinger section for those of you who have been with us for the start Ball Offside is back hey um, yes and um, we'll be back with another podcast this time next week thanks to everyone who's listened and contributed and in the meantime go and read the website www.failedcritics.com catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 